recognize in yourself if there's anything that resonates with you as being um, true or important that you already know and that you already understand. And tonight I'd like to talk somehow, weave together the question of happiness um, and the Buddhist teachings of the way of the Bodhisattva. When we come together to meditate, and it's a quite beautiful thing to sit in a room with so many of us together in a society that is speedy and frenetic much of the time, um, to sit together in the stillness that comes. I know you're not still inside, but that's all right. <laughs> to, to quiet the body, begin to quiet the mind, and listen um, is a beautiful thing. Um, Thomas Merton says, Of what avail is it to travel to the moon if we cannot cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? And so one of the gifts of sitting in meditation is the capacity to reconnect with ourselves, with our bodies and the state that we're in, tired or you know, excited or happy or needing tending, um, tension or ease, so that our body becomes included in mindfulness and respect, to touch in with our hearts, the longings, the unfinished business, the tears, um, the beauty, the love that wants to get expressed, the creativity, to let ourselves reconnect. Because happiness in part comes from a connection with the deep wisdom in ourselves. Um, It's a funny thing. We come and sit and meditate and we get the whole show. Sometimes you sit and there's pain in your body or tension or loneliness or the frustration that you have at work or um, grief, those kinds of difficulties we carry. Sometimes you sit and there's joy and ease that comes. You get the whole catastrophe, as Zorba says. But what you start to recognize is as you quiet yourselves, as we quiet ourselves, is that happiness, more than anything, is a matter of heart. Once our basic needs are met as human beings of food and shelter and justice, then it's the inner state, more than anything, that matters. And of course that's counter to a lot of the advertising that we find where our culture has misplaced its value so much on consuming things. The poet Hafiz writes, The mind is ever a tourist, wanting to touch and buy new things, then toss them into an already filled closet. And there we are in our culture, kind of accumulating things. But somehow we know, again, once the basic needs are met, we know some people with a lot of money quite wealthy who are happy, and some people with a lot of money who are unhappy, miserable. And some people who are poor who are unhappy, and some people who have very little who are filled with well-being and joy. So this is a story I told maybe a month or two ago here, but it's on the repertoire for the moment, so I'll tell it again. I like it. There was a, a good friend of mine who used to sit 
on Monday nights on occasion, named Milton Friedman, which is also the name of um, Nobel Prize winning economist at the University of Chicago. And my friend Milton Friedman um, worked as a speechwriter in the White House for Jimmy Carter. He also worked in the Senate as a speechwriter for a number of key senators. Um, And one day in the 70s when there was this huge economic meltdown, double-digit inflation and all kinds of things economically difficult, Milton, my friend, got a phone call. Um, And uh, uh, is this Milton Friedman? Yes. Um, Well, um, it turned out it was the um, head of finance for one of the biggest church conglomerations in the country. I won't say which particular church, but he said, um, I represent the church. He's a minister, but I'm also an economist, and we have a portfolio of so many hundred billion dollars, and with all the economic um, trouble at this time, I'm looking for advice. Where do you think we should invest the money? Or what should we do with this money? And my friend Milton thought for a moment. He said, have you considered giving it to the poor? (laughs) Which was kind of a shock. And the guy on the other end of the line said, is this the real Milton Friedman? (laughs) To which my friend Milton replied, is this the real church? In a time of continuing ecological destruction and degradation that we know about, continuing warfare and injustice and racism, the kind of conflicts that we see around the world and the kind of ignorance, there is in us a sense that there must be another way, that we don't have to follow these and that happiness doesn't come from that kind of fear and terror and security and trying to, you know, um, in some way place the suffering on some other group or some other people or some other country. And even though Buddhist teachings acknowledge suffering as quite central, the first noble truth of the Buddha is the truth of dukkha or suffering. It says it's a part of our lives and anybody who's just clinging to pleasure and trying to avoid pain. Anybody succeed in that? Please raise your hand. Anybody who has that as an internal program um, will be really unhappy because it's not the way things are. But even though the Buddhist teaching begins with the suffering, it's not the end of the story. It's only the first noble truth. The second noble truth is the causes of suffering, greed, fear, hatred, confusion, clinging, all those things that bring us to suffering. And then the third noble truth is that there is an end to suffering, that there's joy, that there's ease, that there's freedom that is your birthright, that is possible for you as a human being. And this realization that joy, freedom, happiness is possible is terribly important, and it's terribly important in these times. Um, A poem that I find, as someone who loves poetry, to be one of the most significant or important poems I've read in the last decades 
um, by Jack Gilbert, A Brief for the Defense, begins, Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's also what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. And the poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they've known and the awfulness in the future. If we, let, if we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure-seeking, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit that there will be music despite everything. It's a very, it's a fierce poem to start with the sorrow and the suffering of children and the injustice of the world and the poor women at the fountain laughing together between the suffering they've known and the awfulness in their future. But to make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil, he says. If we deny our happiness, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. This is a pretty amazing thing to say. What is it that is our place in the world? Is it to go around, you know, and be lost in the sufferings of the world? Or is it to find some other way of being in this world, in this incarnation, this human incarnation, with its 10,000 joys and its 10,000 sorrows, and say, yes, I can be here in the midst of all of these, awake, free, liberated. I mean, one of the things that I carry with me when I teach and I treasure a lot is this photograph of Vedran Smolovich. And Vedran was the cellist of Sarajevo. Um, I pull his picture out here every six months or so and in honor. Um, and when Sarajevo was under siege in the Yugoslav-Balkan War, um, not very many years ago, a handful of years ago, between the Bosnians and the Serbs and the Croats and so forth, you remember it was a few wars back, but not that far back, um, Three years, no one could get in and out except pretty much UN helicopters went in and out. I think Joan Baez went in and sang, you know, and a few various people. But mostly mortar fire and sniper fire. Um, And in the middle of this, veteran who'd been in the Yugoslav National Symphony every day would put on his tuxedo and take his cello and a folding chair and go sit out in the main square of Sarajevo in spite of the snipers and the mortar fire and play music so the people of Sarajevo would not give up hope. And then this was a photograph of him in the bombed-out National Library of Sarajevo playing a concert when the war ended. Um, We must admit there will be music despite everything. 
So the Buddha looked out at this world of birth and death and gain and loss and praise and blame and joy and sorrow. He said, what is it that brings freedom and what is it that brings happiness? Happiness comes not from these external things. Once you, As I said, once you have a modicum of food and shelter and justice, happiness comes from your integrity. It comes from speaking truth and acting in ways that are true and not causing harm to others. That's what integrity is, to act in ways that cause neither harm to yourself nor one another. Morality, virtue, there are all kinds of words. Some of them are kind of archaic, but the meaning of it is to act with integrity. And when you meditate, you start to feel the effect of this kind of happiness. Basically, as I've said before in other evenings, it's hard to sit and meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It just doesn't work very well. Um, And in the monasteries, it was so beautiful because there was a love for our respect for everything. This poem from uh, Lloyd Reynolds, one of the great calligraphers of America, he writes, A bug crawls over the paper, leave him be, we need all the readers we can get. (laughs) And there's some way that when we have a reverence for life, which was the which was the environment, was the the field of consciousness of the forest monasteries where I trained in Asia, where the ants and the bugs and the the deer and the wild um, game of the forest were as cared for and as respected as we cared for one another. When there's this field of reverence or integrity, there comes ease and generosity and caring and trust And it makes for happiness. So they're the outer forms of happiness, of integrity, of not harming other beings. makes us happy. Of being generous, you know, of caring for the life of other beings. And then these are supported, it turns out, by having a quiet mind. Um, When we meditate, the simplest description is you sit to quiet the mind and open the heart. And if we're frantic and over busy and frightened and lost and tense and reactive and so forth, it's hard to stay in touch with our fundamental integrity, our care for ourselves and others. We get lost. So we sit, not for any special state, but to come back to ourself. My teacher Ajahn Chah put it this way. He said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. And so this is another dimension of happiness. It's the happiness of having a sense of a quiet mind and an open heart, a stillness in ourselves, where we're not reactive and frightened and riled up, where we're centered in ourselves. And in doing so, we discover a kind of inner freedom that cannot be 
that cannot be shaken, really, or we get shaken, but that fundamentally cannot be touched by the changing events of gain and loss and praise and blame. It's like Viktor Frankl in his famous statement where he said, we who lived through the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts comforting others and giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but their very existence proves the final freedom for human existence, human spirit. The freedom to choose your spirit in any given circumstance. And this was the awakening of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, to realize this fundamental freedom that is available to you, to each of us, that is our own Buddha nature. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in, how difficult or beautiful or tempting or frightening, that there is within you a fundamental freedom, your own Buddha nature. And to know this brings the deepest kind of happiness. So here is the Buddha, as the story goes anyway, the great myth, seated under his tree of enlightenment and discovering this freedom, knowing this is the way the world is, birth and death, joy and sorrow, gain and loss, praise and blame, light and dark. And in the midst of it, the heart can be free. Now what? That's the question, now what? Then, in the stillness, the Buddha, it said in this myth, surveyed the world with the eyes of wisdom, and tears began to roll down his cheeks, because he saw beings everywhere who wanted to be happy, doing the very things that cause suffering. Clinging and grasping and fighting and getting reactive in, in anger and fear and hatred and, and um, addiction and all the kinds of things that, and jealousy and envy and all the things that we can get caught up inside when we forget who we really are. And it says as it says in one Buddhist text, for it's not just the Buddhist journey, but it's ours as well. After the, the realization of the final insight of freedom, where you can allow everything to arise, not cutting it off, yet not falling under its spell, there comes in you, there's born in you, exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who do not realize this essence of freedom. And you spend your life working for the sake of these others, but all your meditations have now cleansed away any idea that these others really exist separate from yourself. The whole illusion of separateness dissolves in this freedom. And so the Buddha's tears rolled down his cheeks, and he looked around and he saw all these people who were like himself. They were himself, their own Buddha nature, covered over, confused, wanting to be happy. And it's very simple. In Zen, they say there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. 
So breathing in, you sit down and meditate and quiet the mind, open the heart. And then breathing out, you get up from your seat and you go out into the garden of the world. And so the Buddha rose up from his seat of enlightenment and walked the long, dusty roads of India for 45 years, teaching in an open-handed way the possibility of happiness to everyone that he met. And part of the way he taught, which is also what I was taught, was, uh, is called in the Buddhist tradition the way of the bodhisattva. And bodhisattva is a compound word. Bodhi means awakened, and sattva means being. So it is a being who is committed to the awakening of all, of all beings, no matter what happens. And so the Buddha walked those roads in the, as an expression, if you will, of the archetype of the image of the bodhisattva. And the vows of the bodhisattva, which one can take often in different Buddhist temples or traditions, are that sentient beings, living beings are numberless. I vow to offer my life to the awakening of them all, to the benefit of them all. It's a kind of a serious vow to take. Um, not because you're supposed to, and it would make you, you know, a good person and will look good on your resume or, you know, your obituary or whatever. Well, some bodhisattva along with um, a uh, master's degree in business from the, you know, Berkeley. But, um, but because it's a way to be happy. And it's a different way of thinking about happiness than we think of in the, our popular culture. This way of happiness is that it's the love that you give, the love that you find in yourself, and that the love that you give that, that is what makes you happy. And people who don't have a way to give, it's a tremendous sorrow. So I carry this little traveling altar with me um, that has a picture of the Dalai Lama and the Shantideva version of the Bodhisattva vows that he takes every morning. May I be a guard for those who need protection and a guide for those who journey on the road. And may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge for those to cross the waters, an isle for those longing for landfall, and a lamp for those who need illumination and light. May I be a resting place, a bed for those who need rest. May I be the medicine for all who are sick, and the food for all who are hungry, and the tree of miracles of abundance And like the great earth and the sky itself enduring, may I too endure for the benefit of the boundless multitude of living beings as their sustenance and nourishment, awakening us all until we all pass beyond the bounds of suffering. Morning prayer. It's a kind of a serious prayer to take. Okay, may I, for however long it takes, sentient beings are numberless and Let's see, I'm going to start with that one and then that one and then that one. And the thing that's amazing about the Dalai Lama, who's, you know, of course, such a world figure now, is that in spite of the weight of the tragedy, the continuing tragedies and sorrows in Tibet and in other parts of the world that he is so concerned with and works so hard to alleviate, he's also happy. He's also happy. 
And people have asked him about it. I mean, he had his best, best-selling book in the New York Times, best, you know, number one New York Times bestseller for a year or two, The Art of Happiness. You know, how can you be happy in this way when all these terrible things have been happening to your people in Tibet? And he'll say they've taken, you know, our sacred books and burned them from the temples and they've taken the monks and nuns and thrown them in prison and they've destroyed um, many of the temples and um, many of the parts of the richness of Tibetan culture they've destroyed. Why should I also let them take or destroy my peace of mind? They've taken enough. And this is an amazing statement of inner freedom. that no matter what we go through, and it doesn't mean that you won't grieve and that you won't have tears. And the Dalai Lama weeps a lot, like everybody else, when things are painful and they're sad. He weeps very easily. It's an interesting thing to see how, how he will, you know, something tragic happens and he weeps and, and floods of tears and great concern. And then he goes back to this state of the mystery of life and incarnation and and its wonder and its beauty in the midst of it all. And so the awakening of the Buddha, which is really the awakening of each of us, is a reminder that in the ruthless furnace of this world, to use that phrase from the poem, it is possible to live with dignity and integrity and joy and love and love this world and all the beings in it and seen and unseen and it's what makes us happy and meditation is a support for that it's not to get some state or some special experience but to put us in touch with the the deepest freedom and happiness of our heart so in the in the new book that um, has come out recently that I wrote, I start by talking about this kind of freedom or nobility um, with these little excerpts from the Buddhist texts that begin, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, the sons and daughters of good families, the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember your true nature. Because we tend to be in our culture, as I've said many times, we tend to be loyal to our suffering and really take it to be ourselves. So Robert Johnson, the Jungian analyst, writes, people resist the noble aspects of their shadow, of that part of themselves that's disowned or they don't want to look at, more strenuously than they hide their dark sides. It's more disrupting to find you have a profound nobility of character than to find out you are a bum. When uh, I heard Zen Master Suzuki Roshi was speaking to a student um, who was going on and talking about their difficulties and their unworthiness and how they, you know, their own kind of neurosis and self-hatred and self-judgment and all that kind of thing, and he looked at the student and he said, you're, you're perfect the way you are. 
And to hear this from this beautiful, wise, loving, great master, you're perfect the way you are. Students smiled, said, and there's still room for improvement, you know. <laughs> and this is kind of the paradox that um, the fundamental ground is a perfection of our nobility to remember this. And then, yes, of course we can practice, and of course we can grow, and of course we can develop. But in some <clears throat> fundamental way, the fact that you're here is because the universe approves of you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. <clears throat> so we begin with this ground of nobility or dignity of our true nature, our Buddha nature, and then discover that when we return to it, when we return to our own dignity with mindfulness and care and presence, stillness, that there is in it innately compassion, connectedness. When we get quiet, how can we not care about the life around us? Because it's part of us. It's not separate. When we're not caught up by our fears and our conditioning, you know, from the past, someone's in difficulty, the natural response of the heart is to help. So last year, um, on one Monday night, I told the story. My daughter had been coming home from the East Bay where she was at school at Berkeley. Um, And uh, she was driving home one afternoon across the Risman Bridge and then coming up Sir Francis Drake Boulevard to to where the the four-lane road goes near the ferry terminal and the Larkspur Landing. Um, And the traffic came to a halt. And... uh, the car right in front of her stopped. It just stopped cold. It was just sitting there, and she was looking out, and people were starting to honk and back, back of her and stuff. And no one was moving, and she thought, this is really weird. She couldn't see anything. The cars were just stopped. So she got out, and she walked out to see what was happening. And it turned out that was, there was a mother duck with nine ducklings that were crossing from the land side across the road toward the ferry terminal. And these two cars had seen it. And so it was like that children's book, Make Way for Ducklings, right? There was the mother, and she walked across the road and got up onto the center island, and the nine little ducklings all crossed, you know. And so my daughter Caroline and a couple of other people got out and made sure it was okay, and they got on the center island, which is, you know, pretty wide there. And they were kind of relieved. And as soon as the last duckling got on the center island, the mother duck, Mac Mac, saw that, and jumped off the island and started across the other two lanes of traffic. And so my daughter and the other person had to run over and stop the cars, you know. And the the duck and the ducklings all crossed to the other side. But there was a big curb, like a foot-high curb there. So the mother duckling got up, but the little ones couldn't get up, and they had to go and, like, help each little duckling up, you know. And she got home, of course, she was ecstatic. It was like, oh, Dad, you got to, you know, this is the greatest thing that, you know, my day is made. So I told that story. And then after telling that story, people have came up to me for weeks and told me duckling stories. Not literally duckling (laughs) stories. Somebody was driving down Nicasio Valley Road and they saw on the road this um, bird that looked like it was still whole, but it was lying in the road on the other side and they passed it and then looked back, it was still there and pulled over and sort of walked back and went and and picked up the bird, and I think it was a dove, and it had obviously been hit by a car in some way, 
um, but it was still warm, and you know, you could feel it was still alive. And she said, I just held it for a while, you know, and did my meditation and compassion for this bird. And all of a sudden, this little eye opened and the head turned, you know, it was in shock. And the eye then closed again. It didn't like what it saw, right? Then <laughs> opened its eye again, then closed its head, and then it finally opened its eye, stretched its wing, and it flew off. She said, and I felt so good at having stopped and gotten this bird off the road. Um, you know, but then somebody else came up and said, well, I work in the emergency room, you know, and this single mom who didn't speak good English and was obviously a new immigrant to this country came in with like six kids because one of them was really in trouble, an asthma attack, but there was no one to leave the other kids with and so she brought all the young kids with them and it was like the duckling story, she said. So, you know, of course we took care of the child with asthma but we also had to take care of all the other ducklings and the mom and I just got all these, all these stories that are natural to us. When I was in Palestine and Israel earlier this year, the, the symbol that was the most moving to me, visiting a whole series of different peacemaking groups and people who are replanting olive groves, Israelis and Palestinian women working together and the former combatants for peace, painted on the backside of the big dividing wall along the line between Israel and parts of Ramallah and uh, the West Bank on the backside was this huge 10-foot image of the peace dove wearing a flak jacket, you know, carrying an olive branch in its mouth and wearing a flak jacket as if to say, you know, times are tough and I'm here anyway. And it was really, it was, and there were flags of that. It was very, very moving to me. So the notion of the bodhisattva is a being who isn't afraid of the difficulties of this world, or maybe is afraid, so we're afraid, so what? Who may even be afraid, but who knows somehow that what brings happiness in this world is not running away from the way that the world is, but offering ourselves to it, tending to it, tending to our own life, Bodhisattva doesn't exclude their own body and their own life and their own heart. This is part of the circle of compassion. But the willingness to turn toward it and know that freedom and compassion is possible no matter what the circumstance. And in Tibetan Buddhism, you actually pray for difficulties. You ask for them. You say... Pray, may I be granted enough suffering that the great heart of compassion will be awakened in me. That's, that's a kind of different move than our kind of American <laughs> cultural advertising, isn't it? You know? Or this from a great Indian master who says, Go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, call out to the gods, but watch out because the gods will come and they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So either you go willingly, basically, or the suffering comes anyway, because it's part, it's woven into life, right? But in this way, as Helen Keller says, though the world is full of suffering, it is also full of the overcoming of it. There is a trust that grows in us that we can turn toward our grief, our fear, our rage, our shame, our sorrows, 
and not be overwhelmed by it. Because we learn in meditation, all these things come up, and the big question is, how do you touch it? Do you touch it with fear and aversion and aggression and try to get rid of it? Do you keep the war going in yourself? Or do you sit as the bodhisattva and the Buddha and say, oh, you too. You know, it's not just the wars in the Middle East and it's not just the conflict in, you know, some other part of the city, but it's that which we carry in ourselves because those are born out of human consciousness. And so how do we touch these? And we learn in meditation that we can open the heart and open the space of awareness and trust that we can face all of our humanity, the whole of our human incarnation displays itself when we take this seat in the center of the world underneath our tree of enlightenment. Um, And more and more we learn this possibility of inner freedom. And people will come in when I'm leading residential retreats and I do a lot of individual work with people and they'll say, oh, you know, I have so much grief. It feels like it will never end, you know. And I'll listen and I'll say, well, how big is it? Is it as big as the ocean? Oh, it's bigger. All four oceans? That's how much tears I have in me. I'll drown. I'll never... Well, okay, why don't you close your eyes and let yourself drown and see what happens. Maybe you can swim underwater. And the tears come and the grief comes and how long is it? It's going to last for a thousand years. Well, okay, give it 10,000 years. That's fine. We're not in a hurry. How about 100,000? You know, 10 minutes, of course. Imagine it's 200,000. How long do you need, Right. And the the tears weep and weep. And at some point, in the first day or the fifth day of the retreat, or maybe it's the fifth month because it's a great loss in their life or the first year or something, if you let yourself open, something new will be born. It always is. It always, always is. The space of awareness begins to show us that something else is possible when we don't resist experience. And we begin more and more to trust the great heart of compassion. How do we touch this world? The Bodhisattva sees the world of pain and suffering and beauty and love and mystery and, and touches it all with, with the heart of kindness. So a story for you. The poet and spiritual teacher Araya Mountain Dreamer writes about helping a participant at a New Age meditation seminar. She says, at the end of a very long day that I had been working, a small, thin woman in an oversized park introduced herself as Isabel. Can I do this meditation on my own, she asked. Yes, I said, I'm sure you can, although many people find it easier to establish meditation with the help of a group. It's just hard to keep up the discipline on your own. But what will it give me? What will I get if I do this every day? Her tone took on a whining quality, and I felt my irritation rise as she continued. How fast will it work? Will I feel a difference after a week? How will I know it's working? This was exactly the kind of thing I detested. The quest for the quick fix, the desire for guaranteed outcomes, the simple answer, do this and you will get that. My sons were waiting for me, and I wanted to go home. I took a deep breath, looked directly at Isabel, and set my knapsack down on the floor. 
I tried to slow down my words thinking that maybe if I spoke slower, I would feel more patient. (laughs) Well, I said, meditation is more a process than a goal-oriented activity. It can help you become more aware of what's going on within and around you, and this can help reduce stress. My best advice is to try it and just be patient with yourself. And I picked up my bag and started to button my coat. I really did have to leave, and I wanted to get out while I was feeling virtuous for not snapping her head off. (laughs) But as I started to move away, Isabel suddenly reached out and grabbed my arm with surprising strength. But what I want to know, she said, her voice rising in a crescendo that bordered on real panic, is will it help me find God? If I meditate, will I have an experience of something or somebody out there, someone listening, someone really with me? A wave of desperation swept out from her through me, and I was surprised to find my eyes filling with tears. This woman wasn't looking for an easy answer or a guaranteed formula because she was lazy. She didn't want a simple plan because she was unable or unwilling to think critically about what would work. She wanted something she knew would work and work quickly because she was hanging on by her fingernails. She wanted something that would work in a week because she was afraid that she simply wasn't going to make it through months or years. And I put my hand gently over Isabel's where it gripped my arm. It's okay, Isabel. We all feel desperate at times, I said. Nobody does it by themselves. We all need help. And her hand relaxed a little beneath mine and she started to cry. And we talked for a while longer. There is no them, There's only us. And when I left, I did not leave one of them. I said goodbye to one of us, a human being doing the best she can, searching for the home for which all our hearts long. At the root of the awakening of the bodhisattva is this shift of identity that I talk about so often. Remember how I say, you know, when you look in the mirror and you notice that you've aged, but you don't feel like you're older? You know what I mean, right? (laughs) And that's because it's only your body that's older. Your mind doesn't get older. Consciousness doesn't age. It's just the body. And something in us knows this really deeply and truly. And this is part of the mystery of incarnation, of coming into this body with the, you know fur at one end and all these kind of strange protuberances and I mean ears I mean I have to have pretty big ears ears are really a bizarre thing these little flaps of flesh with all the little curly cues that stick out from this head I mean you just have to look at the body for a little bit or teeth I mean it's really bizarre I don't know how, how you got in there right so you look and you say okay it's older it's getting older but it's not me it's not who I am you know, you use it. Life is not a journey to the grave to be arrived at in a beautiful and well-preserved body, but rather to slide in broadside, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. Right? So we look from the view of the bodhisattva, of the Buddha nature, and this mystery and say that the body isn't who I am, Who we are is this being of spirit. Freedom, compassion, these are our true nature. And then what makes you happy? 
What brings happiness? To remember this, of course. And then as you move through the world to stay in touch with this freedom and this love, which is what connectedness is, really. Love is like gravity. It connects everything. It's the oneness of things. And to extend it in small ways, the bird in the road, the stone in the road that you stop your car and move out of the road so somebody else doesn't have an accident. You know, the desperate person, the story of Isabel, the little ways, but also in the big ways. And I always like to tell the story of my friend and colleague who's taught here um, on Monday night at times, the, the um, Gandhi of Sri Lanka, Ari Ratana, and without telling the whole story tonight, how in the search for a peace process in Sri Lanka, he brought together all the followers of his movement of, um, called Sarvodia of spiritual service and organizing throughout the country and 650,000 people came to this great gathering where he was trying to help the peace process in the country and he offered a 500-year peace plan. He said it took us 500 years to get into this, 400 years of British colonial oppression, 500 years of conflict between Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus, 200 years of economic disparity between the rich and poor parts of the island and the Buddha teaches that we have to attend to the causes and conditions for things if we would have them change. So what I propose to you is a peace plan for 500 years to get out of this. You know, five years of uh, ceasefire and 10 years of rebuilding roads and schools and 25 years of learning each other's languages and religions and 50 years of an economic development plan that writes the inequities in the country. And then after the first 100 years, we'll have a big council and see, take stock and see how we're doing moving toward our peace process. And as I say, when I heard this, um, the first time I heard it, I was so moved because it's the vision of an elder. It's the vision of a wise person who isn't worried about the next election cycle and isn't worried about the next few moments or nanoseconds of news or polling or you know, whatever people say, but looks with the heart and says, what matters in this world and what will I devote myself to? Again, as Thomas Merton writes, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless at times and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps occasionally bring about its opposite. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. You dedicate yourself to what is beautiful. You plant seeds in the world of what's beautiful. And you trust, it's not given to you when the seeds will sprout, but you trust in the process of planting seeds and acting with integrity and care for yourself and others that it will bear fruit. And it will, because this is the both the way of the world, this is the law of karma, the lawful nature that when you plant an apple seed, you get an apple tree. And when you plant a mango seed, you get a mango tree. And when you plant seeds of goodness, they bear fruit. As Henry David Thoreau said, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, 
I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. And so our practice grows and deepens, and we come more and more to trust the capacity to live in the reality of the present, to live where we are with an open mind and an open heart, and to plant seeds of goodness. As you sit in meditation, as you work, as you teach in the school where you work, as you work in your conscious business, you trust more and more that, in, that what is given to you in this world is to offer yourself with beauty. And it's what brings happiness to you and what brings happiness to others. And that it's unstoppable in some way. Pablo Neruda's line, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. There's some much greater force at work in this world than just the human forces, destructive though they can be at times, creative at other times. And as we do this, we we find the capacity to open to the unbearable beauty of the world and the ocean of tears with a wise heart and say, yes, I can face it, I can open to this. I have this article I took out of the New York Times called The Chicken and Rice Man, um, and it's from Queens, you know, and it's one of the areas where all these immigrants, mostly from South America, Ecuador and so forth, who'd come looking for work stand out to try and get jobs. Um, and a lot of days there aren't any. Um, some days, as one of these guys that was interviewed by the reporter for the time says, some days I've, I've gone days without eating anything or survived just on bread, but for the past year I've had at least one hot meal a day, and so have all my friends. Because this fellow, Jorge Munoz, an elfin 43-year-old who goes by the nickname of Colombia, where he's from, comes every day at 9.30 in the evening with huge pots of home-cooked food to feed dozens and dozens and dozens of day laborers who wait for them. Every single night, Jorge is here. Doesn't matter, rain, thunderstorm, lightning. He'd do that from his goodwill, you know, said one worker, an old guy with a leathery face. The relationship between Jorge and the many feeds is personal. Uribe, you want more coffee, he asked as he saw a familiar face. Hey, Simon, you want seconds on the pasta? In a way, Mr. Munoz seems to need this man as much as they need him. His unofficial meal program gives meaning and focus to his life. All the cooking is done in a small house with gray vinyl siding where he lives with his 66-year-old mother. The operation finally financed mainly, mainly from the money he earns driving a school bus. I know these people are waiting for me, he says, and I worry about them. You have to see their smile, man. That's the way I get paid. And there's this beautiful picture of this man smiling as he's getting his chicken and rice. It makes me want to read the New York Times. You know? Who we are, even our struggles, our vulnerability, our suffering, our, our humanity, become our gifts as a bodhisattva. It's not that we hide them. 
the bodhisattva finds the ways to awaken with others. And there's thousands of ways to do it. There's so many ways. You do it by making conscious business or teaching English or, you know, working as a healer or working as a farmer. It doesn't really matter as long as you're not actively harming people. You have a life to live. You have this strange and amazing incarnation and there are all these wonderful stories of bodhisattvas in every form. Um... Let's see. This is a friend of mine started the Plane Tree Hospital Systems, which are patient-centered hospitals. You're on the second floor of a modern medical center, but you'd never know it. The Plane Tree Hospital does not feel or look like an ordinary one. Classical music plays softly in the background. Patients wear their own robes and pajamas sleep on flowered sheets, are encouraged to sleep in as long as they like, undisturbed. There's no nurse's station. It's been replaced by a convenient study area where patients are encouraged to read their own charts and write in them as well. There are no visiting hours. Friends and family are welcome at all times convenient to the patients. Family members cook for their ailing loved ones in a special patient's kitchen. Interested family members are trained to serve as active caregivers. Once a patient gets the taste of plane tree hospitals, they simply won't permit themselves to be admitted anywhere else if they can help it. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? There are all these different ways to work or to serve, to offer oneself. Hmm. The Bodhisattva, it said, appears in a hundred thousand different forms. And uh, Meister Eckhart, the great Christian mystic, puts it this way. He says, the outer work will never be puny if the inner work is, is great. So you sit in meditation, not so much to get anything, but to come and remember. Remember a connection to yourself, Remember a connection to the deepest values of your heart. Remember that you are free, that you are fundamentally free, and no one can take that from you. To find this freedom and dignity and what Martin Luther King Jr. called soul force within yourself. And then to realize that the world doesn't need more oil, it doesn't need more food, even though there's a food problem now. It needs less greed, less hatred, less ignorance and prejudice. It needs more awakened beings. And guess who that is, in case you were looking for one. Hmm. little story in here again. Psychologist Len Bergantino writes about working as a therapist and becoming really frustrated with this patient who always seemed disconnected and detached or else kind of, you know, trying to do something, trying to please him in some strange way. He said, the feeling I had on this particular day is I just didn't want to say one more word to him about anything. I didn't want to talk and try and figure it out. It was just too much. And I looked at him and I just looked at him for a while. And then to his surprise... I took out my mandolin 
and in the most loving, mellow way I could, I played Come Back to Sorrento. He broke down in tears, and he cried for the last 40 minutes of the session, saying, Only, Doctor, you sure earned your money today. And I replied, To think I wasted all these years talking to people. (laughs) There is something mysterious that we want to give that makes us happy, which is our love, our love of life, our awakening. And, of course, we have to stay connected with it in ourself. You can't do it in some kind of codependent way. Okay, now I'm going to be, you know, superwoman bodhisattva and take care of everybody else and forget my own body and my own community and my own home and my own care for things. We have to be part of that circle of compassion or it's not complete. It doesn't work. The circle of compassion has to include yourself. But when it does, then things become beautiful. Um, Then from the place of a quiet mind and an open heart, we can move through this world as the bodhisattva. Um, And what better thing to do, what better way to be happy? And so I end with a a kind of modern version of the Bodhisattva vow written by the poet Diane Ackerman. She writes, In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, as an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors and the day that embraces it, and the cloud veils drawn over it, and the uttermost night, and the male and the female, and the plants bursting with seed, and the crowning seasons of the firefly and the apple, I will honor all life, wherever and in whatever form it may dwell, on earth my home and in the mansions of the stars. And you could write your own bodhisattva vows. They could be really simple. But you know what the heart would most wish to leave in this world as you pass through in this mysterious, amazing incarnation. And to sit and listen to the heart is to know this and then To get up is to, like breathing in and breathing out, is to sweep the garden of the world. So let's sit for a moment.
And then uh, just one last thing before we go out into the summer evening. Um, I'm going to do a book reading tomorrow night at Book Passage for anyone who's interested. Um, and I would like us to do, first I want to, and also I want to thank you for your attention tonight, for your generosity and your support of Spirit Rock, for your kindness. Um, and I'd like to do a simple chant before we go out into the evening, just very short. Um, in India, when you meet a person, the greeting is to put your hands together and say, Namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are. And the root of the word namaste in Sanskrit is the word namo, or in Pali, which means to pay respects to or bow to. And I'd like us to chant the word namo nine times. And as you do, you can feel what it is that inwardly you would bow to, to yourself, to the difficulties you've triumphed over and the ones left to deal with, to people that you care about, the circumstances in the world where people are struggling that needs your respect, whatever it is, inwardly. And then we will um, go out into the soft evening air. Namo as a bodhisattva this week ahead. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.